I encourage you to open your Bible to Romans chapter 14. It's important that we look carefully at this passage today. 1980, a young seminary graduate moved to California with the purpose of starting a new church. At first, it was discouraging. People didn't seem too interested. The pastor decided to just do a survey through the surrounding neighborhoods and ask people a few questions like, what kind of music do you listen to when you're at home? Based on those answers, he made the decision to adapt his services to, uh, and to adopt that style of music, thinking, well, if that's what they like, why shouldn't they find that when they come to church? At the same time, he made another decision. He decided that he was going to change his dress that he wears, the the clothing he wears, uh, in leading a worship service. He decided to dress down, to, uh, to dress more casually, to dress the way people dress at home, and focus more on personal comfort. Wonder what people might do if they found out you can come here and you can just be the way you want to be. Just be comfortable. Just be yourself. Enjoy yourself. What he found when he made those changes, uh, to use his own words, the church exploded with growth. Come to find out when people uh, find, find a church that is striving to please them, they like it. Who knew? It was like this was a huge discovery. Over the coming decades, that church became a model. Thousands, without exaggeration, thousands of pastors uh, came from all over the country to Southern California to examine how did you do this and how can we imitate this new model of ministry that's all focused on pleasing people. What he discovered, actually, is something that's been true ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. People assume they have a right to please themselves in what they do. They also assume that other people ought to be trying to please them as well. Uh, Everything's about me. Every individual thinks he's the center, the most important person. The new part that this pastor had uh, had brought to the table was the idea of bringing that concept into the church and telling people it's okay. You see, what used to be wrong now becomes acceptable. Let us please you in how we design our service. 
Of course, it does seem more spiritual to refer to this as exercising your Christian liberty. That sounds a little better than exercising your human rights. That's the word, that's the terminology that the world would prefer to use. But whatever you call it, the problem is that God doesn't agree. You don't have such a right. Yeah, he has not issued a liberty to please yourself in the choices that you make. In fact, our passage today reveals that the path of pleasing self goes directly against the gospel. Yes, right at the heart of what we believe. Directly against that. You don't have the right to please yourself. Romans 14 is where God's word addresses this issue head on. And it's a devastating blow to that false assumption. Devastating is in that Paul is not only going to forbid it, this passage also tells us exactly why. And it's a why, it's an explanation that gets right to the heart of everything and reaches everything we do, every choice we make. Here's the, the message of this passage from Romans 14. Because Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. Of course, there is an assumption there, assuming you have made him Lord, that you have accepted his gift, which means now he's in charge. But if you have, then he is Lord of your life. And you must choose to do, here's the switch, what pleases him. Let's look into this passage. Verses 5 through 9 is where Paul sets this up and tells us why. It's going to give us further motivation in verses 10 through 12. For these first few verses, he says, you must select the options. You've got choices, right? And you must select the options that honor the Lord. Now, that's the first attempt at saying it, that honor the Lord. And that phrase shows up in our passage today. In fact, it's, uh, the, the translators are going to express this in a couple of different ways. And I'm going to have, here's a, just a little heads up. This is going to require just a little bit of a lesson in Greek grammar. You've got, you've got room to grow in your Greek Grammar understanding a little bit? Okay. Uh, let, let's take a little foray into that because it's, at the, it's just crucial we get this and understand why we get some variety of translation of a key phrase. Well, let's start where Paul does in verse 5 where he says your personal standards must fulfill God's purpose. Now, here's his second example. We saw the first one last week, and that's a variety of dietary choices are okay among God's people. 
Uh, and, and the two options Paul highlights, some people include meat in their diet, some people don't. Okay. Again, that's, that's true in our day as well, but not very many people attach religious significance to it. That was what was going on here. Uh, that there were some that thinking, oh, I, I don't think we ought to eat meat. And others concluded, oh, no, it's actually okay. Of course, there's no command that says, thou shalt eat meat. So Paul's conclusion is, if somebody chooses not to, doesn't think that's right, okay for them. Somebody else wants to, fine. But now the second example, and, and well, one more reminder from the first example we saw last week. In fact, one of those two opinions is better than the other. A, a, a biblical understanding would conclude that it is okay for God's people to eat meat. But if somebody doesn't, isn't sure about that, fine. It's not going to hurt their relationship with God if they don't take another bite of steak the rest of their lives. They're fine. So just let them have their own uh, decision about that. Here's the second example, and this one's not just a distinct example. It is purposefully different. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. So in this case, this is just observing one day. One day, uh, God expects me to behave a little differently. Another, uh, another person says, oh, no, no, we need, to, uh, we need to esteem every day. Every day is for the Lord. All right, well, that's a legitimate distinction. But in this case, which one is weak? Paul doesn't tell us. He did with the first example. Here's the first hint. Paul is moving into new territory. The first one was, you know, there really is a better perception of truth. But this one, he gives no such indication. Uh, and, and like with the first one, as I, we noted last week, uh, many interpreters think, oh, well, I know what's going on here. This is a, a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. But remember last week we noted together, even Jews eat meat. They just eliminate some kinds of meat. Jews were never required to be vegetarians. So it's not really a Jewish-Gentile thing. And then they do the same thing here. Oh, we know what's going on here. Some were, were Jewish uh, background, and they were carrying over the Sabbath into Christian worship. Well, Paul knows the word Sabbath. And he chose not to use it in verse 5 or anywhere in this passage. And besides, what religion doesn't have a holy day. We do. For us, uh, for Christians, ever since the first century, we call Sunday the Lord's Day. The distinction in verse 5 is that some would say, oh, it's best to behave a little differently. Some things you shouldn't do on Sunday that are okay other days. 
And the other person would say, oh, no, I don't think you ought to do those things anytime. If they're not right on the Lord's Day, how can they be right some other day? So that's a, that's a viable distinction. Okay. Paul concludes verse 5 by saying, let each, uh, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He did not say that about the example of eating meat. Because there's always the possibility of the one that thinks eating meat is wrong will mature in his understanding. He didn't say, be fully convinced that eating meat is wrong. But here he does. Be fully convinced. You think every day alike is the way to go? You think that highlighting a special day and and doing things differently on that day, that's what I, I am going to do Be fully convinced. In other words, this example is not a better, best. It's not a right-wrong issue. Both are equally good. And it's okay in this case as well for God's people to be different from one another. Or to say that a little more pointedly, it's okay for somebody else to do something different than you do. But that brings up a question, doesn't it? If I have a responsibility to be fully persuaded in my own mind, really convinced, how do you get there? How do you get there on something like Uh, the examples Paul has used. How do I get fully convinced this is the way for me as opposed to, yeah, I just think that's better. Why that puzzles us is because we leave something out of the equation in the decision-making process. How would somebody decide whether or not they're going to eat meat as a part of their diet. My guess, it typically goes like this. Hmm, I like meat. Okay, then that's what I want to do. It's done. Settled. What if there was another factor that is way, way, way more important And you didn't even think about it. That's what Paul introduces in verse 6. An aspect that is way more important than, do you like meat? How do you feel about restricting your activities on a particular day? You like that or not? Verse 6 says this. The one who observes the day, and Paul is speaking ideally here. This is the way it's supposed to work. He's not suggesting this is the way it's going on now. But in God's plan, here's how it should work. The one who observes the day highlights one day as different from the others, observes it, here's the phrase, in honor of the Lord. Now, that's our translator's first go at uh, rendering in English this key phrase I referred to earlier. 
And let's see, how many words did they take to say that? In honor of the Lord. Five words. Those five words reflect how many words in Greek that Paul wrote? Paul wrote one. That one word is the word Lord. But that word Lord occurs, and we don't have this in English really, it occurs in the dative case. So here's your lesson, dative case. And an interpreter has to think, well, why would he put it in the dative case? What am I supposed to supply in English that best reflects that? And so in this case, our translators put in the words, in honor of the, in honor of the Lord. All right, well, that's helpful. Uh, A little later, they're just going to use the word to. You do something to the Lord. The New American Standard, our our translation has that, that variation. The New American Standard, I think, actually does better on this. It has one translation, and they're so they're consistent with it. And I think it's the one that helps us the most. And it comes out this way: the one who observes the day observes it for the Lord. I think that best reflects what that dative case is communicating, which, which we call a dative of advantage. He chooses to honor a certain day for the advantage of the Lord. Or here's another option. To accomplish the Lord's purpose. Or to use the ESV in honor, in order to best honor the Lord. You see what's missing? Any reference to what you like. Any reference to what you're used to or what is most comfortable for you. You see, the question to ask is, I wonder what would please the Lord the most? And that's a full 180-degree turn. Rather than, let me think about what would please me, that's not even a factor. Drop that one entirely. The question is, I wonder what would please the Lord. Now, the answer to that question might not be immediately obvious, I don't think you should look for a verse in the Bible that says, when it comes to whether or not you eat meat, here's what you ought to do. Because he's giving room for a distinction here. And so it is for the wide variety of choices we make every single day. You have to ask the question, what would please the Lord? How can I best accomplish his purpose? How can I best honor him? Now, let's look at verse 6 from that standpoint. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord or for the Lord or in order to best accomplish his purpose. The one who eats, eats meat, eats 
in honor of the Lord or for the Lord or in order to accomplish his purpose, in order to serve him better. Since he gives thanks to God, well, the one who abstains, the one who says, no, I'm not going to eat meat, abstains, not because he doesn't like it, abstains for the Lord. He comes to the conclusion, I can best serve God if I don't eat meat. And he thanks God for the opportunity to serve him. Because the command here is, you must please the Lord. Choose what serves him best, what accomplishes his purpose. Now, why would the Lord direct two different people in a distinct path of choice on the same issue? Let's just use Paul's example. uh, Eating meat or not eating meat, and both of them look up at the Lord and ask, Lord, I I just want to serve you. I just want to please you. Which one should I do? And and God gives an indication. It can come in a variety of ways. How do you know? Well, you're never going to know if you don't ask. Ask for God's conviction in your heart. That's my pet. Why would he lead two people in a different direction? You see, God has a particular assignment for every one of his servants. And it shouldn't surprise us that it serves his purpose best, knowing where he wants you to serve him, how he wants you to serve him, your role in his plan, and it would be... uh, It would serve him best, you would accomplish his purpose best, if that's the choice you made, it might be a little different part of the country, and that's just going to be open some doors. Paul traveled all across the known world, and he encountered a number of different cultures. What he said about himself is, I can be all things to all men. I can adapt. I can adjust, not according to my preferences, but according to how I can best have an opportunity to accomplish God's purpose in this culture. But now it's up to Paul to convince us that this is actually okay, that it's right for for us to consult with the Lord and ask him how he wants us to live And so he does that in verses 7 through 9. We find out it's more, far more significant than just these non-essential choices that distinguish one from another. In fact, his argument in these verses is your entire being must fulfill God's purpose. Not just your daily personal choices and standards. Everything you are belongs to him. This is a very careful argument, and he continues to use that same terminology of that date of of advantage. Verse 7, for none of us lives, again, I think the word to here is probably the least helpful. Let's say it this way. None of us lives 
for himself. None of us lives for the purpose of pleasing himself, accomplishing his own purpose. None of us have that right, Paul is asserting. Not even you. And none of us dies for himself. That's a little easier for us to uh, acknowledge. Yeah, who would choose to die and it's for my own advantage? But somebody, you know, euthanasia has become very uh, uh, much more popular and available across the Western world. People are saying, I think I'm, I'm suffering too much that uh, it would please me more just to die, so I'm going to take my own life. You don't even have that right. You're usurping God's place. He expands on that in verse 8. For if we live, we live, and here it is again, for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. He controls your whole existence. And further, it's for his purpose that you exist or that you stop living on this world. It's all about him, not about you. He controls your existence. And on that basis, well, at the end of verse 8, Paul has a conclusion, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And there he changes the wording a little bit, and he's talking about possession. We belong to the Lord. The reality is no more complicated than that. There are no buts to be added here. And now Paul has the zinger. Here's the clincher for his whole argument in verse 9. Christ deserves nothing less. He deserves your full submission, your devotion to him. He tells us that's exactly why he saved you. For to this end, to accomplish this purpose... Christ died and lived again. Oh, you thought he just felt sorry for you. You had to go to hell. So he paid for your your sin, and now you're saved. He's just being nice. No, he did that. He died and came to life again. In order that, to use Paul's words in verse 9, in order that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the the living. He died for you to be your, to use a colloquial term, to be your boss. And if you're a child of God, there's no getting out of that responsibility. This is all a call then to re-examine everything what you wear, how you present yourself in the world, what you watch, what you listen to. Every choice you make, where you go, what you do, 
The question isn't, ah, let's see, what would please me today? The question is, what will please the Lord? You need to ask him and expect you'll have to make some changes. This is a radical readjustment of thinking about life. Well, what would be the consequence if I just continued as I've been doing? Seems like I'm getting along okay, so what's the big deal? What's at stake here? That's what Paul wants to say in verses 10 through 12. You will explain decisions that ignore God's word. God's word that says Christ is in charge of you. You're going to ignore that, or you're going to have to give some explanations one day. Verse 10, Paul reaches back to the beginning of this chapter to tell us that what he's about to say covers all that he has said so far. Both the issue of criticizing others who are different, that was uh, the first four verses, to this matter of making personal choices, there's coming a day of judgment, he says. So why would you continue to do it your own way? Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? That's using the terminology uh, going back to verse 3. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. What? There's a judgment for God's people? Yes, there is. This is only one of three passages in the New Testament that describe this event. This is exclusively for believers. Those who have rejected Christ as Savior will face another different judgment. The only question that needs to come up on that one is, did you trust Christ as Savior or not? And depending on that answer, the verdict will be, then you go to hell if you've refused Christ's payment for your sin, or you go to heaven because you did trust him. This one is different. That one is a judgment for sin. But this is people that are all forgiven. This is not uh, judgment for sin. This is not penalty for sin. This is an assessment for rewards. There's another passage that I think is helpful for us to consider here that describes the very same event, but a little different focus on it. I'm just going to read 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. It says, now if anyone builds on the foundation, the foundation is Christ, your Lord, how did you serve him in your life? Well, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, things of value, or 
Another category, wood, hay, and straw, things without value. Uh, especially the wood here isn't nice, planed wooden boards. This is sticks, twigs. Each one's work will become manifest for the day. What our passage is calling the judgment seat of God, that day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. The fire is not testing the person. The fire is testing how they served God during this life. If the work anyone has built on the foundation survives that test, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up like the wood, hay, and stubble, He will suffer loss. He'll have nothing to show for his years of opportunity on this earth. Nothing to show for it. Though he himself will be saved, because that's not the question here, but only as through fire. This is an assessment of believers for reward. And to confirm that this is not some new idea, he quotes from Isaiah 45 in verse 11 here. He says, for it is written, God's people have had reason to anticipate this for a long time. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. He is going to ask some pointed questions like, I told you, don't be critical of somebody who is different from you in non-essential matters. Why were you still critical? I told you, your choices had to be based on what serves me best. Why did you continue to please yourself? That's going to be a hard question to answer. In fact, you won't have an excuse. God will question you. Verse 12, you will answer. It says, so each of us will give an account of himself to God. He will allow no exceptions. You're not going to escape this. This is a somber moment. This is God's courtroom, and you're the only one standing under examination at that moment. You will answer. And maybe nothing more than, I don't know. I thought it was okay. I thought everybody was just making choices that pleased themselves. That moment, it won't be okay. A full, honest, embarrassing revelation, I made the wrong choice. Now, why is he telling us about that day? It's so that from this day forward, you'll change how you do this. 
from this day forward, it's not any longer about me pleasing me. It's about me pleasing Christ. That church in California eventually became the largest church in the Southern Baptist Convention in the world. Their biggest one. Tens of thousands of people. An amazing uh, instance. And over the years, this goes back all the way to 1980, over the years they have continued to adapt themselves to what pleases people. They've just found more and more innovative ways to do that. They reached a milestone, though, just last year. Until then, they had followed the pattern that only men can be pastors. But in 2022, that church ordained three women to the role of pastor without any restrictions of their ministry. You can pastor women. No, they can pastor anybody. Uh, the founding pastor just this year passed the torch on to another pastor to be the lead pastor and his wife. Husband and wife, co-pastors. As well as uh, other female pastors and other male pastors as well. Their thinking was, yeah, all right, this... this doesn't follow the uh, Southern Baptist guidelines, but it's probably going to be okay. I mean, are they go- what are they going to do? We're the biggest church they've got. We're the wealthiest church they've got. We've got more influence than anybody else. So people wondered, would the, how would the convention respond? Well, this past February, the executive committee met to discuss this. And after much deliberation, they came to the conclusion, this not only violates our convention standards, this is a clear violation of the word of God. We cannot allow it. And they voted to expel that church from the convention. Well, immediately the church filed an appeal, which was their right under the the rules of the convention, so glad we don't have a convention, okay? This is all so complicated. So they filed an appeal. So that came before the national meeting, their big annual meeting just last month. And they gave their arguments why they ought to still be in the convention, why this ought to be okay. And then others addressed the opposite side of the issue, and they took a vote. This is representatives from all over the world. And they voted overwhelmingly to expel that church. Huge decision. Great ramifications for the convention. Probably next to none for the church. They don't need the Southern Baptist Convention. They're going to continue and probably continue their downward slide into pleasing people. And in that sense, they're going to be just fine. That's a reminder to us that the judgment of 
other men is not the most important factor. Now, I don't pretend to have insight as to how it's going to go at the judgment seat of Christ for anybody else. This passage is saying the one that really matters is how it's going to go for you. It will matter to you then. This whole passage is an instance of God's grace saying, you don't want to have to give that bad answer then. So change your focus now. Commit yourself to please the Lord. Ask him to forgive all the times that you never even thought about what would please him and just focused on yourself. He'll forgive you of that. Ask for his help to zero in on what needs to change in my life. Lord, I just want to please you. Help me in reassessing all these choices, my priority, everything. I would urge you, talk to him right now. We'll have a few quiet moments before I lead in prayer. Prepare yourself for that judgment day right now. Father, this is a somber passage. We thank you for the grace that you offer through Jesus Christ that can not only save us from sin, but can save us from our selfishness. Father, would you help us in our reassessment? Pray that you would have your way, that we would be the most useful to you based on the choices that we make under your guidance that you might find us useful for the cause of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.